hello. Welcome back to Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate and I am the host. And uh, this is part two of our episode six. So we're covering we're covering uh, post-World War II uh, period. We're going to go from... What did I decide here? Let's say, okay, 1947 to 1981. And... Um, we're going to get to, we decided, I'm, I've decided to end this era in 1981, um, because that is the, uh, that is when Ronald Reagan fired the striking PATCO union members, the air traffic controllers. And, um, I think that's a good way to end this era. But obviously, I'm going to get to that starting in 1947, because that was the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. So that that basically replaced uh, the Wagner Act of 1935. Um, and so that became, you know, the governing legislation for labor unions, organized labor. And it weakened a lot of the Wagner Act provisions. It opened up the ability for states to declare themselves right-to-work states. So that, so basically in, an, in a right-to-work work state, you cannot have a closed shop. So this, this episode is about deindustrialization. Um, it's not my favorite term, definitely not. Uh, it's, it's not strictly accurate. Um, you know, these, these companies weren't these companies did not really move away from heavy industry, um, but it, it's the term that we use. So basically what that means, so when you hear deindustrialization, um, what it means and what you should think is that these companies began a process of decentralizing their operations. So if, if you get, you know, kind of gilded age, uh, you know, turn of the century through to, you know, the 40s uh, with World War II uh, effort, you get a lot of centralization of, of factories and workers into these, these cities um, in what we now, you know, think of as the Midwest um, and like Ohio. Um, and deindustrialization is the reversal of that process. They're moving their plants out to the suburbs, and more dramatically, they're moving operations to the Sun Belt. So they're moving they're moving operations to Atlanta, and they're moving to you know Phoenix, Arizona, uh, uh, Texas, Southern California, Orange County. Um, you know this, they're moving they're moving south. This is made possible in part by the advent of air conditioning. It's just too damn hot to survive in Phoenix, Arizona without um, air conditioning. So this is this is what so this is what um, companies are doing. This is what auto manufacturers are doing. Um, you know, uh, you know, steel steel plants, that sort of a thing. They're moving their operations out from the cities. Why are they doing that? Well, so the reason the reason they give is that oh we're going to make things more we're going to make things more efficient. <clears throat> so a big part of deindustrialization is is automation. So they're investing a lot of capital into these new technologies, um, you know, robotics, automating a lot of their production lines. 
so just to give you a, a just to give you an idea of of the scale of this between 1946 and 1956 general motors spent 3.4 billion dollars on new plants and facilities and ford spent 2.5 billion dollars on on new plants it's big money right big chunk of change the other big reason for this is this is a way to combat the hold that that organized labor has on these industrialized uh, cities. So if you if you kind of you know, you know if you build a plant in Atlanta or in uh, you know uh, Houston Texas or whatever, it's going to be expensive, but you can you can move your upper management to that plant this is this is all almost all white people um you're going to move your 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 management to these plants and you're going to hire you know whoever lives there those people are not going to be unionized in large part right so you're you're investing a lot of money you're you know building new factories and investing money in automation but they're doing this because they're they're getting around organized labor. Um, and and this is not coincidentally. This is also the era of of white flight. So white people are moving to the to the suburbs. They're moving out of uh, cities. So first part of the twentieth century, cities are you know these kind of industrial wonders, and you know this is this is like very futuristic and modern. And then as you get into the 60s and 70s, you know, cities kind of become the sites of like urban decay and blight. And weirdly enough, right, like when the white people move out of the cities, oh, now, you know, uh, state and municipal and, and federal governments don't want to invest in cities. It's weird how that works out, right? So... In terms of in terms of timing, right? So in terms of um, how we understand this period, the golden age of labor, you know, the so-called golden age of labor, is going to last. I mean, through the seventies, right? So in nineteen seventy nine, um, you actually have, in terms of membership numbers, you have the peak of union membership at twenty one million workers, right? That's a that's a big portion of of workers. But this is actually, um, in terms of union density, in terms of the percentage of workers, this is actually down from the peak in 1954 at 35%, which is, I mean, that's, that's amazing. In terms of private sector unionship, in terms of private sector union membership, I mean, that is a number that we, I mean, we're like uh, below 10%, I think, currently. So, so what do we make of that? Well, my, my way of thinking of this um, is that, I, I mean, you can think of like the Wagner Act, I guess. I mean, we'll, 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 we'll pinpoint it at the Wagner Act. You can kind of think of like the Wagner Act for, for lack of a better, you know, kind of point. It's almost like the Big Bang, right? So that kind of sets off this explosion of, of union membership. And as soon as possible, so 1947, right? So as soon as um, the war is over and capitalists gain a measure of control again, um, away from this, this huge organized mass of workers, they begin to try to rein it in, but that it's still on that trajectory 
you know, of, of, of people moving upwards, of, of union membership going upwards. And it really doesn't kind of hit that plateau until the late 70s. And then by the 80s, you start to see the drop off and, and you know, kind of symbolically then it's like, okay, we've really, ten, we've really turned a corner. Um, but I do want to point out that as, as soon as, as soon as possible, right, capitalists are, are, are fighting labor, uh, are fighting union membership. But it, because it had gained so much steam and so much momentum, it's really going to have uh, a lot of a lot of influence, a lot of power for a couple more decades before, you know, it's able to kind of they're able to curb that. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, UAW Local 600. So I think I've mentioned them before, but I want to uh, bring up a, a, a little bit of their of their history. Um, anyway, so this little episode. This is just an example. This is not. I, I want to preface this by saying, you know, this is not. This is not some like big important chapter in U.S. labor history, but it does give us a little window into uh, what's going on at the time and, and the kind of the decisions that organized labor made during this time. Local 600 operates out of Ford's uh, River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan. And this was built in the in the 30s, and this was this huge uh, new. Again, this is you know you get this kind of centralization of of technology and industry. This is an example of of that where the where the where Ford is like built this new state of the art plant and everything, and it employs a ton of people. Right. And local 600 has uh, 60,000 members, at the, you know, in 1951, um, a third of whom are black. There are a lot of communists in the union. There are communists in uh, in the leadership of this union. This this union is starting to go rogue and it and it, and it gets, you know, relative to other union locals, it's got a bit of leeway because it is so big like it's just got so much pull um and it's 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 uh it starts doing wildcat strikes which are strikes that are not not authorized by leadership in the international and um it's got an alliance with the uh national negro labor council so it's it's this it's a it's a bit more of a radical union it's got a lot of black support, um, and it is at odds with, with, with the with the top brass in the UAW. In 1951, and they do this they do this kind of on the sly, but they sue Ford for uh, breach of contract. What was happening is uh, Ford, kind of like what I was had been talking about, they were investing in automation, and so they put a, they put a bunch of automation into the River Rouge plant. And the union says, this is a breach of contract. You are undercutting our right to work. We have a right. Um, you know, part of, the, part of this contract is, is we have a right to, to a job, basically. That is, that's kind of a, that's a bold, that's, a, that's an audacious um, claim to take to court. They did not win. Um, but what is notable about this is they're kind of doing this without support from the international. And so between, you know, between uh, the 30s, where you have 
radical unionists fighting Pinkertons and fighting cops and the National Guard in the 1950s, you get a bit, of, you get a change there, right? You have a radical uh, union local, but they are, they're really kind of, they're kind of the last gasp of this radical unionism. And the international, the UAW, um, they don't want anything to do with this, right? Like this is a losing battle. They're more interested in, in being in the boardroom and negotiating with the NLRB there. And they're, you know, talking to, to, um, Oh, who's in, who's president? Yeah, Eisenhower, I guess. Eisenhower's probably not working with them very much. But the, I mean, they're like in Washington. They're in the boardrooms. They're not going to invest their resources in this kind of like in this losing battle. In the U.S., you're not going to make a case in 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 the courts that you have a right to a job. It's just not gonna it's not gonna shake out. But they did it. Um, personally, I got you know enough respect for them that they that they gave it a shot and that they were a cool union local that i um have a little uaw local 600 pin so i have another pin here this is a real object lesson i'm a real object lesson ass today um this is communications workers of america afl-cio Social security deductions from pensions unfair, right? So this is this is the kind of thing. I mean, I just I just happen to have that, but I just think it's interesting. It's like that's your rallying cry by the '60s, right? Let's go get them, boys. You know, social social security pensions, social security deductions from pensions unfair. I mean that you know, like you got like the wobblies, like <laughs> you know, uh, you don't need your boss; the boss needs you. You got you got that kind of radical rhetoric happening, um, you know, decades before. And then this is the kind of thing. I mean, this is the kind of thing that that organizers are trying to organize around. It's like your tax deductions, and it's just a different. It's just a different world, right? It's a different environment. Anyway, so my point, just to reiterate my point with that lawsuit is you've got, I mean, by 1951 or, or so or thereabouts, you've really kind of, you know, gotten the last of the radicals out of organized labor. Now it's like suit and tie stuff. And in hindsight, you know, was that a mistake? Well, we know that, um, you know, something went wrong. I'm going to kind of revisit that um, because, you know, this hold that organized labor had, this power that they had waned. And so if that's, you know, something that they did, well, maybe we can point to this, you know, kind of juncture where they're not willing to pursue a radical agenda anymore and they start to start to lose power. I don't know. Anyway, so during the same, the, during the same period, um, and I was reluctant to try to, I mean, I could have tied this in with the other part of the episode, uh, part one, where I talk about the civil rights movement, but I really, I didn't want to reduce, I didn't want to kind of reduce all of the culture war stuff to, to the civil rights movement. And in fact, I didn't want to, I didn't want to reduce civil rights as a concept. I didn't want to re reduce, you know, the, pro you know, the struggle against racism, to the civil rights movement as as a thing 
I just didn't want to like kind of muddy the waters there. And so I stayed away from that. But, but, the, but during this period, during this period of deindustrialization, during this period of white flight to the suburbs, a lot of this is bolstered by a backlash to the idea of civil rights to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the demands that civil rights movement leaders are making and, and the gains that they're making. Right. So when we see, um, when we see black people get rights, when we see women, you know, get more rights, there's a backlash. It makes, it makes people really uncomfortable. A lot of the people have their privilege directly threatened and they fight to keep it. Um, and so you get this backlash and this backlash is not, I mean, we think now we, we, we tend to think of, of labor unions as like this inherently progressive or left this thing. And that's not the case, right? I talked about how, you know, Teamsters were strike breakers against the UFW. Uh, and in fact, in 1970, the Teamsters endorsed Richard Nixon for president. I think that they were like the only major labor union um, to endorse Nixon in 1970. You've got the civil rights movement. You've got Vietnam happening. Vietnam is pulling the entire country, including organized labor, in in opposite directions. Right? You know, you kind of are support, you're you're for it or against it, basically. This rift exposes people's most deeply held beliefs, right? So one thing that happens during the 60s is you get um, you get the president of the AFL-CIO, George Meany. He, it, it comes out, uh, you know, uh, Walter Ruther's brother, Victor, uh, leaks this to a journalist in an interview. It turns out that the a the AFL CIO was actually funding right wing efforts in Latin America to thwart unionization. Right, so a lot of people are pissed. There is a reason why they're doing that on the sly because they know that this is not going to be popular. But still, like there is this like protectionist impulse to to organize labor and george meany is not what you would call a conservative right but this idea of of kind of u.s empire is just so deeply implanted into into american society um but anyway so if you ever hear uh the afl cio referred to as the afl cia well it kind of comes from this this kind of willingness to work with the CIA. I mean, they were, they were, they were partnering, partnering with the CIA and, and undermining organized labor in Latin America. Um, and this is a piece with, with like what's happening in Vietnam, right? Like Vietnam, the Vietnam war is an anti-communist kind of imperialist war. Um, Walter Ruther, who I keep going back to, so he was he was against the war kind of personally. He he did not speak up against it because he's in a position where he's he's um, working with Lyndon Johnson, right? So Lyndon Johnson, who is is a formidable presence, right? He was he was he would throw his weight around, and you didn't really want to cross this guy. But Lyndon Johnson was was like, hey, you got to support me on this they're saying you know xyz i need the support of 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 big labor by the late 60s you know ruther kind of splits from that and starts speaking out against the war 
um, you know, especially as it gets more and more unpopular, right? By the late 60s, it's... Anyway, so another example of this is in New York, you've got an anti-war demonstration um, and uh, uh, construction workers, unionized construction workers come out to the demonstration and start beating up the, the protesters, right? So another example of this kind of culture war rift where it doesn't, it does not, you know, skew along uh, uh, labor lines by any means. There are, there are a lot of, uh, you know, conservative leaning unionists. Um, okay. So all of this leads to the election of 1980. So, uh, the air traffic controllers union, PATCO, they endorse Ronald Reagan. By 1981, they go on strike, and they're, they're a public sector union. So this is an illegal strike, right? Um, technically, uh, public sector employees have different rules that they are governed by. Um, there's, there's, there's definite rules where strikes are legal or not. Um, it's hard to kind of get an authorized strike. And so they, this, is, this is an illegal strike. Um, but but still, um, you know, public sentiment is largely with these 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 strikers, right? This like these are workers, and they have legitimate grievances, and people are like, nobody expect nobody really expected Reagan. So so Re what Reagan does is um, in response to this strike, he fires all of the strikers, and he's and he's he's you know, he's within his, his legal right to discipline them in some, in some way because their strike is illegal. He fires them and that sends a real message, right? So this is a significant moment where it's like, okay, the president is not going to, is not going to put up with organized labor anymore. The country's really taken a turn. This is a punctuation mark on the end of big labor, more or less. So we end there, um, and this kind of, we're going to go into, so the next and final episode is going to be neoliberalism. So we're going to enter that era with the election of Reagan, the firing of the Patco strikers, and the rise of Silicon Valley. Um, but I want to, I want to pause here and offer some, uh, let's get some takes, right? So let's do a roundup of takes from, from labor historians about, about what happened, right? There was so much promise. There was so much power to organize labor. And by 1981, it was, a lot of it was gone. Well, I'm going to read this quote by Melvin Dubofsky, who is a, uh, a notable labor historian. This is from his, this is from the conclusion of We Shall Be All, which is his book about the uh, wobbly, Wobblies. Dubofsky writes, as a result of their commitment to ultimate revolution, as well as to immediate improvements in the existence of the working class, radicals the world over quickened the emergence of strong labor unions and acted as mis... Mi acted as midwives at the birth of the welfare state. But success, instead of breeding more success, 
only produced a new working class enthralled with a consumer society and only too willing, even eager, to trade working class consciousness for a middle class style of life. The ultimate tragedy then for all, for all radicals, the American Wobblies included, has been that the brighter they have helped make life for the masses, the dimmer has grown the prospect for revolution in the advanced societies. Right, so he's basically saying what happened to uh, big labor, you know, the labor movement was workers got a house and two cars and a stable livelihood and, you know, lost their zeal for revolution. I'm not, I, I think there's something to this. I mean, if, I, I, I respect Duvovsky. I mean, he, he's, he's an expert. Um, and I'm going to defer to his expertise on this, but at the same time, I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, he's, he's working from a Marxist frame, right? So advanced societies is a bit of a tip off there where Marx thought that, you know, there's, we're, we're going to see an evolution from capitalism to socialism is going to happen in the most advanced societies. Um, and that, you know, there's like this kind of intrinsic working class consciousness that, that automatically exists. I, I, I think he's, I think he's, if I may, right. I, I don't really buy this, um, you know, this transition to this consumer society, you know, sapped big labor. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't think that there were all that many workers to begin with that necessarily wanted revolution, right? So you can look at the 80s and say, oh, well, you know, everybody got the, got, um, what they wanted. They can, they got the nice suburban home, but I think a lot of, I think a lot of workers were, were revolutionaries, you know, by out of, out of convenience or out of opportunity rather than some, you know, commitment, just my take. Um, but I do think, again, I mean, I'm sharing this quote because I do think it is something to, to think about and something to consider, right? This, this idea that big labor, uh, was a victim of, of its own success. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read quotes, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase, uh, a couple other, um, historians, um, so Eric Loomis wrote a book called A History of America in Ten Strikes. And in the, in the introduction, he lays out a kind of thesis, you know, rather clearly. Organized labor does not make any progress, doesn't make any inroads unless it has the government on its side, right? So he's got, he's, he, you know, he's got this conception of, of labor and capital, and they're fundamentally at odds. No surprise there. But really what what tips the scale is the government's uh, decision to side with labor or side with capital. I really I mean, I really can't refute that. And and looking at it, it's like I have no evidence that labor can really uh, effectively combat capital without the government stepping in and, and kind of mediating that. So I think I mean, I think that's a that's that's fine. It, I don't know how. I don't know how useful that observation is, but I can't really disprove it. Um, there is another uh, labor historian, Philip Yale Nicholson, and he he wrote a book, Labor Story in the United States, 
and um, I would I would I would recommend that with qualifications. I like the book. Um, I like that he goes, you know, he gives us kind of more of a, a fuller picture of labor. He doesn't just look at organized labor. I've adopted that frame for this series. Um, um, it's a good read, but it's, it's a bit dense. It's a bit academic. But if you're okay with that, by all means, pick up Labor Story in the United States by Philip E. L. Nicholson. Um, anyway, so his approach, he's he's... He's, you know, further left than Eric Loomis, uh, who Loomis I would kind of describe as a New Deal Democrat, and and Nicholson is is a bit more of a Marxist. Um, so his his theory on on labor on this kind of history of organized labor is that organized labor really only makes progress when. Uh, capital decides that it's in their interests to let that happen. So this is really leaning on the idea that uh, the New Deal was an effort to save capitalism. Again, which I, 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 I believe, I accept that. I think it's a bit nuanced and complicated. Um, but I think that was the big, the big impulse. I'm friendly to this argument. Um, and at the same time, reading his book, I, I, I'm not convinced. So, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, right? Based on my own observations and my own understanding, it might very well be the case. And it's, maybe it's just too uncomfortable for me to think about, but I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so there, there are a few ways to kind of make sense of this process where organized labor lost power in the United States. And I present those to you and um, just things to think about. I mean, also, I should say, I don't know that there's going to be anyone kind of silver bullet theory that's just going to explain everything in, in one fell swoop. But um, I think it is worthwhile trying to figure out, you know, what, where big labor came from and where it went and what happened to it. Anyway, so that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining. And uh, please tune in for the final chapter in my version of, of U.S. labor history, um, in which we'll look at neo, in which we'll look at neoliberalism. Okay.